All right, people. It's me, Stuart, with the Reanimated Podcast. I'm back, uh, but I'm also not here because I'm I'm traveling or HA is working. There's some combination of events that it makes it impossible for us to release a fresh podcast today. But what I've got for you today, I don't know. It's like three parts punishment and 17 parts amazing. It's our uh, review recap of 28 Days Later, which we originally published in 2013. This podcast runs longer than the runtime of the movie. We just would not shut up about it. So if you're fans of Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, I suggest you give this a listen. You might want to break it up, uh, walk around a little bit, but uh, let's, uh, let's talk on the other side. All right, enjoy. So uh, we, we, we promised that we were going to be talking about 28 Days Later today, and 28 Days Later really is the seminal fast zombie movie, although calling it a zombie movie right away is another point of argument. Right. I, I think especially Danny Boyle, who is the director of this particular film, didn't uh, he has some very strong ideas about the zombie genre. In fact, he's not a fan of it. He doesn't like zombie movies. He feels like zombie aficionados are very picky. And he quotes, he says, quote, unquote, they are quite precious with all their rules. Like with the running, they don't do that. You know, in his mind, I think this is more, it's a zombie movie, but it's more of an infection movie. And part of this is just sort of in line with what is what is a super scary thing that mankind faces. And he came up with, pandemics like smallpox, Spanish flu, Ebola, SARS, and, you know, most recently, as we've seen coming out of the Middle East, MERS. So, well, I mean, it was him and, and writer Alex Garland. We should, well, right. right? Well, I mean, we cannot leave Alex out of this, definitely, because this is sort of his, this is his deal generally, I think, don't you? Yeah. I mean, did they both work on the beach together? Yes, yes they did. And they also worked yeah. on Sunshine together, I believe. What I think, while he might not, he might poo-poo zombies as a genre, what I think we can say is that when Danny Boyle and Alex Garland work together, there's definitely an anti-humanity <laughs> element to their writing uh, and to their treatment of, of characters and storylines. Um, Sunshine, I don't know so much. Have you? Uh, did you watch it? I've, yeah, I've seen it a long, well, it's a few years ago, but I don't, like, is there like a... I mean, yeah, granted, the, the eventual reveal of the bad guy, right. is, he's, he's a human, but they've all been driven insane. So right. does it matter? Like, do they, they're never really like, they're never really held uh, accountable for being immoral, I feel like. Well, they aren't, but I just think they both have some very interesting ideas about human interaction and morals yeah. in survival yeah. situations. Yeah. <laughs> and in the beach, it's like, it's definitely not even as intense as a 28 Days Later kind of scenario. But people are dicks, and I think that's kind of what they like to point out. <laughs> well, and, you know, even talking about the film the 28 Days Later, he's, you know, Danny Boyle at this point is probably sick about talking about it. He wasn't involved in the, sec- in the sequel. There has been talk that he might be involved in, in the next chapter of this, if there's a next chapter. But mm. overall, he feels like why he went this route with with the fast zombies is that the slow zombies are boring. You know, he he enjoys Walking Dead, 
but he just feels like that's just not fast enough. He just thinks it's it's not going to move the plot along. So yeah, so I guess fast zombies are to Danny Boyle as super powered zombies are to video game developers. And I, th- I think it's a bit of a crutch, but uh, I'll allow him this crutch because 28 Days Later is a fantastic film. It is. And this was definitely, when I saw this, I I went back and saw it again. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this movie so much. I've watched it many times and it was just well done. So well done that you can get over some of its issues. Um, which is that this was definitely the first foray into for a movie of this type of filming with digital instead of with film. And the quality at this point, I noticed it a lot more watching it this time. Did you have that feeling, Stuart? Yeah, and I definitely have not. Um, I've tried to find, you know, I first realized that this was an issue with this film when I tried to find it on Blu-ray or like right. a high definition version, but there it does not exist. No, because because it was one of the first films made this way. I guess that they couldn't even transfer it to HD. There's no way to do that. Right. Is that correct? Right. And part of why they did it this way was it's a variety of reasons. And actually, if anybody's interested, there is a great documentary that was done in 2012 called Side by Side. I think you can get it on Amazon Prime. Um, And Keanu Reeves is the person, surprisingly, that did this. But it's talking a lot about the history of cinema and the shift from film to digital. And Danny Boyle takes a pretty big... He's interviewed extensively within this documentary. And he talks a lot about why he wanted to do it this way. And there was a lot more flexibility in using these smaller cameras instead of the usual cameras. And also it was a lot cheaper. And they did have a budget, a very low budget for this film by by feature film standards, which was five million pounds. So that's yeah. about seven and a half million dollars. But that's tiny compared to blockbusters that we're seeing. Yeah. Um, and but overall, he felt like the quality that this type of filmmaking provided was more of a voyeuristic feeling, more of uh, attention and there's certain effects that they use with the camera with the the frame ratio, which just causes things to look a little jerky, especially with the infected and otherworldly. And they use this quite a bit just to create this atmosphere of, of I think, terror and anxiety. So. Yeah, I would say that the film method that they used, when one uh, period of the film that I, I felt like it was very noticeable also was in the rain. Raindrops have this really crazy crystalline appearance in this movie right. and there's a whole i mean basically the whole climax of the movie is in the rain but it looks super cool i thought that that was one way that it looked great a lot of other times it looks kind of grainy and weird and you're not really sure um, if it was on purpose or not well for for our homework assignment this week i actually did i watched the movie twice i watched it once without the commentary and then once with the commentary and they do talk about especially the 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 climatic scene in the rain and Danny Boyle was insistent that this is what it was going to look like and that it had to look good. And so I think that they dumped a lot of money into making those scenes look good, but at the sacrifice of making some of the other scenes with the rain look kind of grainier uh-huh. um, because he felt like that was such a huge piece and a, a part of, of that making that scene work. So, well, I'd say it worked. I think it did too. So, 
Um, also, though, what was you know instrumental in making this movie work was the great cast. And, Definitely. Um, some of these people I'd never seen before. Some of them I had, um, but I guess actually most of them I had not. In, in, in the case of, certainly of Cillian or Killian, Cillian. It's Killian. Killian I did Murphy. Did some research. <laughs> who has since become a fairly commonly seen actor. Certainly, he was in Sunshine, and he's been in a couple of the Batman movies as the Scarecrow. Right. Um, and I think that that was a deliberate choice. I did hear that uh, Robert Carlyle was supposed to be in this film, as was, I believe, Ewan McGregor, and that fell through. So, and in some ways, I think that that was a good thing, because I think having more unknown people made it a little bit more realistic in some ways, or you're able to to sort of be like, oh, this is just a, it's just a bunch of nobodies trying to survive. So... Who's, who's Robert Carlyle? Robert Carlyle was in The Full Monty. He was in Trainspotting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, the Scottish guy. Right. Well, I guess he's probably not even. He's, he's in uh, 28 Weeks Later. He's in 28 Weeks Later, but then right, Danny right, Boyle. Right, right, right. He, okay, Danny Boyle produced that, but he was really not involved with. Oh, he was very. He did not have a huge role in anything to do with that film. Still very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, you start to see all the train spotting um, tie-ins. It wasn't um, the guy who plays Henry West, isn't he also from train spotting? Yes, he is as well. That's Christopher Eccleston, who also had, with a lot of these films, he was already getting pretty popular. But I think, especially you know now, he is he has crossed over into you know he's a very well known actor. Well, he does a great job. Um, also, you got Naomi Harris as Selena, who, when we first started talking about this, H.A., we were like, yeah, I don't think we've seen her in anything else. But it turns out she was in the most recent James Bond movie. Yes. So she was in Skyfall. And I think she otherwise just does a lot of British TV. But she's she's really powerful in this film. Yes, I definitely want to. I have. It's going to be hard for me to choose a favorite character. But she is such a just a fantastic actress in this. Yeah, I've since gone on to read a bunch of uh, the comic book. Like, basically, there's a comic book sequel to her ca- for her character. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I, th- I think it's Dark Horse. Oh, or, of course, uh, it's Dark it might be, or it might be Boom. <laughs> it's one of those kind of indie uh, publishers, but it's uh, a well illustrated and well uh, well told story of her. Like, basically, ah, I won't give any spoilers. Anyway, she's still she's still kicking ass in the comic book. Um, and then Brendan Gleeson, though, comes in uh, to play another pivotal role as Frank. And Brendan Gleeson is probably, I don't know, what he, what he might be best known for. He's in the Harry Potter movies as Crazy Eye. What's his face? Um, Mad-Eye Mooney. There you go. Mad-Eye Moody. And he was Hamish in Braveheart. And uh, he's been in a shit ton of other movies. Yeah, he's been in a lot. But pretty much every British actor that we know has been in the Harry Potter movies. So I don't know, Stuart. <laughs> That's, That's a good point. That was a clearinghouse <laughs> for British actors. But still, um, he's I like him a lot. He's good. He's good stuff. Well, I shouldn't say he's British. I think both Brendan Gleeson and Killian Murphy are Irish. So That's, All right. they, yes, they would that's probably get true. upset if we were. They were. Um, and I'm sure they'll listen no. to our podcast, too, right? You can call them British because they're from the British Isles. Okay. I think. I might be. Sorry about that, but Ireland, if I'm wrong. I think uh, mm, I think it's the UK and Ireland. So 
I think people do make a, a distinction. Yeah, but as like a geog- geographical description of those islands, I think that that still includes like the Isle of Skye and all the other islands around there, Jersey. They are all still the British Isles as a collection of islands. Okay. We'll see what our I'm listeners have to say. Yeah, they might. <laughs> I might get strung up for that one, but okay, I'm willing. But either way, so amazing cast from that area of the world. You know, I think they, they did a great job of portraying their characters. And let's talk a little bit about the characters. Yep. Uh, so first and foremost, you've got your hero, sort of. He's, it's his story, uh, you might argue, which is Jim. Right. And Jim, Jim starts off the movie kind of waking up from a, a coma, essentially. And, and so we're, we're learning about the world at the same time as him. Right. He's, uh, the, per- he's the person that's helping us see what has happened through his exploration of, of the yeah. post-infected world. Yeah. And, and based on his interactions with other people that he meets, we learn that Jim is basically kind of a, a, a optimistic guy. He's, he's hopeful uh, about other people that he meets. He thinks that this could, people are good. He does. And, and, but this could also be because he ha- suffered a massive head injury. Okay, I mean, you could argue that the whole the whole episode is is him still lying in bed having in a coma, but. <laughs> or just recovering his functions. So maybe who knows? But I agree with you. I think he he's definitely one of the characters that you you like the most. Yeah, and in the and film, in the film, we're also just kind of along for the ride on his character arc, which is fairly pronounced. Right, and we're very. I think he's a very sympathetic character as well because you're watching him struggle with this new reality and it's a pretty tough reality to swallow. He does a fairly good job. I mean, except for, I guess the first third of the first act, you might say the first act of the film, he's kind of, he's more of a liability (laughs) than anything else, but he definitely gets his shit together. Um, He does. And he evolves into the reality, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. And then, so, the person who helps him probably the most is Selena, uh, played as we said by uh, what the hell is her Naomi name? Harris. Naomi Harris, and um, she's a total badass. Yeah, she's definitely, in my opinion, the strongest character within this film in terms well, of I'd... in terms of her survival level and skills. When we meet her, that's absolutely true. But I feel like she also kind of loses a lot of her gusto because you know it, it, i don't know maybe it's cheesy but it's like she the other more um human characters rub off on her because when we first meet her she's a robot true but does that make her weak i yeah. think in terms of her instincts for survival and she doesn't just teach jim she teaches other people too yeah i just think that jim and selena have this really interesting story like mirrored story arc where she starts off total ultimate survivor he starts off as ultimate victim and they do <laughs> and, and they, they do rub off they on swap. each other they yeah, definitely they swap. swap attributes yeah um by the end she's like crying and doing shit that you're like what are you come on exactly you're you're a machete lady you don't cry you, you don't have feelings right um but yeah, and a, another big part of the reason for her change is um, uh, the Brendan Gleeson character, Frank, who we meet him and his daughter, probably I'd say towards the end of the first act of the film. Right. 
Um, and they're definitely the catalyst for not just the shift in characters, but the shift in scenery too. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, the change in mood, right. Like the beginning of the film with, with Jim and Selena, it's super bleak and, you know, definitely driven home by Jim walking around the city of London, like, hello. And all the, the crazy, uh, isolation that you feel. That was a pretty good impression, Stuart. You like yeah, that? Yeah, that was nice. That was nice. Uh, it, it's bleak and it's also fairly hopeless. You mm-hmm. cu- before we come across the other, b- before they come across Frank and Hannah, there is a distinct feeling of hopelessness. Like all you can hope is to pick up your next Pepsi out of a broken machine and keep yeah, moving. Live on Maltesers, right? Um, but yeah, so Frank is introduced along with Hannah, uh, his daughter, who's like I guess teenager young teenage and um he's a cab driver he's he's another hopeful character he's kind of like jim except he's been awake the whole time so that's an interesting take right um he's hopeful and by 15 minutes after we've met frank he's basically become everybody's dad right i also want to point out that yes he's hopeful but he also has some of Selena's attributes because the first time we see him he is absolutely badass and has destroyed a big group of zombies alone so yeah. you know you kind of see this guy that is completely just merciless in, in dispatching the infected but then turns out to be a sweetheart <laughs> he's a master of his environment that's right, for sure right. but yeah when he takes off the the balaclava like and they, that's definitely done on purpose, right? You meet him; he's in riot gear. Right. You don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what's going and, to come out from behind this this little uniform that he's wearing. And he kills the two uh, two infected, throws them off the bal- the banister, and then comes in. And he's like, "Oh, great to meet you. I'm Frank. <laughs> Let's sit down and have a chat." So. Yeah, and that's. And that right away, as soon as he takes off the balaclava, you're like, the mood is, is lev- you know. It totally becomes- changes. It switches totally. in a heartbeat. The next character we should mention is Frank's daughter, Hannah. And she is, she's a teenager, but she seems very shy, but sweet. And she also tends to drop in a lot of interesting observations here and there that are, she's much older than her years. And I think. Yeah. Not only has the experience changed her th- with the infected and everything like that, but I think sh- maybe she was always a little bit like that. Her relationship with her father is solid. Do we know how she how they lost his wife, her mother? I feel like they mentioned it very briefly, and it, I, I am not remembering it right now. There's a photo of the three of them, but I yeah, I maybe, also don't remember. I, I don't know if, if it made it into this cut of the movie. I think it's referenced, but not within the film itself. They talk about it outside of it. But yeah, it's obvious because, that yeah, mom you, has not survived. Yeah, and you, you could interpret that her like quiet introspection as like her dealing with her mother's death. Or as you said, maybe she's been like that since they lost uh, Mrs. Frank. Right. But I don't think that somebody changes that completely. Yes, this is a Mm -hmm. life altering event. But I also think that her relationship with Frank is so good that there was probably a good baseline for that before all this happened. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They're they're very cool together. She is basically the one who persuades them all to go 
find the army when they find the uh, when they hear the the broadcast. Um, and so she's kind of like she drives the story forward, and she does provide some. It's like everybody feels very protective of her, right? As you might imagine. So she's she's like the hope, I guess. I part think of so. I think she's part of it because she's definitely. And Selena even mentions her and and Frank as for reasons why her mind is shifting a little bit. That she's not quite as hopeless as she was, and she's moving more into into the way that Jim has been thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I think I, she's, I definitely think she, she embodies the hope in this movie. So that's the, that's the main cast. I'd say like the, that's the four heroes, Jim, Selena, Frank and Hannah, and they all get reunited probably in the first 25 minutes of the fo- of the movie. Um, but there's also one other character who we meet and lose, Pretty quickly, Mark, and he's an important character, though, because he's actually fairly well developed for considering how quickly he is killed. Right, but it's I think his character was was excellent in this film because he has obviously been surviving with Selena, and Mm -hmm. they have been watching each other's backs and watching rather not watching. Um, Although maybe they do, I don't know. Um, but they're they're very protective of each other, and they're the ones that rescue Jim and basically give him the lowdown about what's happened, and tell different experiences that Mark is much more open about what happened to him than Selena. Yeah. But he's pretty. I mean, enough developed that when you lose him, it's a big deal. Not just the way yeah. he is lost, but. When he is, when he is taken out, it's, there is, there is a bit of a heartbreak about that whole situation because he has been surviving with Selena in very difficult circumstances. And and he's, you know, he's one of, uh, Jim's basically, uh, he he saves his life and then he's like, look, this is the new world. You're going to have to get used to it. And he tries to teach him some lessons, but then he of course also falls prey to those new rules and that allows us to see the extent to which Selena is a robot and heartless. And but also, you know, he, I think also he, the importance, uh, the reason why the rules are so important, <laughs> why maybe, why she has to act that no way. There's no indication. There's no indication when she kills him that he is infected. Like he hasn't started doing the weird twitchy shit, and he's not spitting up. His eyes aren't red. We don't know that he's infected. Except that there was a bite on him, right? And there was a hole in his arm, but and all the infected blood was over him. But it's still, it's. I think it's pretty obvious that if he turns, they're going to be in big trouble. I guess. I mean, it seems to me that Selena could have killed him when he started exhibiting symptoms just as easily as she did when he was still fully in control of his faculties. I suppose so, but I think that this sets up that particular scene sets up the premise where Selena says. If this happens to to you, Jim, I will not hesitate in taking you out. Yeah, because I no, want to survive. No longer than a heartbeat. There will be no no mercy here. You know, and then she's <laughs> they leave his house, his parents' house, which is where that that goes down. Like his that's like him saying goodbye to his old life, and uh, he's she's still kind of giving him an earful when they're <laughs> right <laughs> back in the city. Uh, when they see the lights at Frank and Hannah's house. Um, but yeah, so poor Mark. Yeah, Mark, poor Mark. Mark is the, the sacrificial lamb in this case. Yeah. Yes, but he did a good job and uh, he, he definitely helped 
set up the uh, the hopelessness of the and like kind of put underline the hopelessness of the first act because I maybe in a way his death is the end of that period of the film. I will. But, I would like to mention uh, Major Henry West, who is a significant character in this movie, and there are many other characters from the British military that come in, but he is the the main character that moves the plot along and and makes certain things clear about the new world um so i think we have to talk about him as well so yeah like there's there's kind of like two enemies or two two bad guys in this film and the the infected are the obvious one and as a as a whole and then henry is the less obvious one and um he does a great job of being one of those gray area kind of bad guys Right, because he's he's definitely survived along with his what what would you call this It's not a lot of dudes. No. It's like six people. There's only six or seven of them by the end. Right. So you know, he is he's definitely in a author- like if if Frank is the, the very kind I idealized father figure, I would say Henry West is more of the authoritarian kind of disciplinarian type of father figure would you agree in, in a way when you get to that dinner scene he, once he, once he's the dad you don't want to deal with <laughs> he's wearing his like you know his like fancy uniform for for that dinner but his troops while they respect him you think they're still they don't act they never act like um they're cowed by him so he doesn't lead through fear he's i'm not really sure what how we're supposed to believe that he still has control over his soldiers. Well, and I don't think it's necessarily disciplined because they don't act disciplined. Henry's idea, and it's not clear if it's his idea or if it's his troops idea, but he wants to, to rebuild society. But what he, he has promised them is that they're going to bring women on board, i.e. Selena and, and Hannah. And, and basically it's going to be like a rape camp. So it's it's right. it's not exactly a very cheery. But this does speak to the the question of how does he keep control of his men? Right? Was it, are... was this the way he was keeping control? Was this their idea or was this his? He's like, what do I do? Well, what do I give them? I give them women. <laughs> so. he, he explains that his explanation is much more sympathetic in a way. If you can uh, apply a sympath, you know a sympathetic motive to a rape camp establishment, but he's like the weakest of his soldiers, the most sympathetic of his soldiers, Jones. Uh, who most in most of his scenes is wearing a goddamn apron. Um, I know they didn't, they didn't knock that over our head too hard. Did they? Yeah. He's like, you know, one day I found Jones with a gun in his mouth and he didn't know why he was going to live on. And so I had to give him a reason. And his, his reason is like continuing civilization, but through, yeah, as we've said, uh, rape camp or like through promising them women. Um, and he's definitely like, I feel like his grasp on, order is very tenuous and he's only doing it through very um lord of the flies kind of maneuvers he's bribing people with with this idea of women he's um if anybody is is asking too many questions he basically uh pulls them down in front of the rest of the men right and but he does still have some control through discipline because uh in one scene at least where things are starting to get fucked up. Like well, after the main uh, attack on the mansion that they fight right. off, 
that corporal is is like hitting on Selena, and then there's a, a little tussle with Jim, and uh, and he brings them back. He's into like order. Yes. corporal, corporal. What's your first action? And the guy's like, go and clear the grounds. He's like, go and do it. So he's like, he's still got some control, but it's very it's much tenuous, just a though. veneer. Yeah, it's a veneer of control. Right. And I think, I don't know. Like, it, it's hard to say if he's like. If he's bare, if he's still just doing making these decisions and doing these things because he wants to keep some semblance of order, or if he's just kind of given up and he's going to be like, uh, you know, a barbarian and this is how he's going to control people. Right. I think that he raises the questions, and his group raises the questions about what is next for civilization and what is next for our group of heroes. Right, um, because they're they're faced with the, the the basically the prospect of being the last men and women in England, or you know. Well, uh, they don't even know that. They don't know know if it's in England or on Earth at this point. So right, true. Certainly, the last ones that they know about and have run, you know, they're the last living people uh, for the last twenty eight days, for all they can tell, who are who have survived these these thirty days. The reason that they are in such dire straits is the infected. And so let's talk really quickly about what the infected exhibit in terms of their personality traits or character attributes. Uh, primarily, as we've said, they are fast. They are super fast. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just, they sprint. And the I think the extras did a really good job of, <laughs> uh, of sprinting convincingly in the scenes where they were running. Well, as it uh, turns out, part of the reason why they look so convincing is that a lot of the extra were professional athletes or yeah. amateur athletes who had been cast deliberately because they had the stamina to keep this up and this sort of level of activity, which I would imagine must have been exhausting filming some of this. Oh, God, yeah, they were just going all out um, and not looking completely, as they would say, knackered. Right. Um, and, you know, athletes, I think, are capable of some superhuman attributes and feats. And so I think that especially when you see gymnasts and runners and, and think people who do this sort of thing professionally, dancers... They are capable of jumping and leaping and contorting themselves in ways that that normal run-of-the-mill humans are not. So I think they also added an otherworldly effect to the infected characters. Also, the infected don't go out during the day. Uh, I don't know that we're ever really given an explanation for that, but their eyes do get weird. And so maybe they're just sensitive to light. So sensitive, in fact, that they run at it when they see it, uh, which is why Jim gets into trouble at his parents' house. Light is evil. <laughs> Light is bad. Um, and they come at it at an all-out sprint and jump through, jump through windows like they're ain't no thing. Um, and then their movement is is also a little bit inconsistently presented because you've got that priest at the beginning who who kind of lumbers around like a like a zombie, doesn't really sprint. Right, and he's very herky jerky. Like he just kind of, it's almost like he can't. It's like. To me, what it looked like was that his muscles were contracting yeah. on and off so that he was barely able to to move toward Jim, which was good for Jim because it allowed him some time to figure out that, that the priest was not right and he could get yeah. out of there. But I I agree with you. It was this it, it's definitely presented in different ways, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, I think, yeah, calling it a, um, 
what did you call it? The muscle. Like, it, it's almost like the muscles are contracting without yeah. any, just continually without any control, so that they cannot yeah, it's move forward. It's very jerky and and off putting. It's very spasmodic, and I right. think that that's part of like the initial uh, infection symptom is that people twitch around and and start vomiting up weird fluids or I guess it's blood but that's one of the the first ways that you see that they're infected and another one of the zombie another one of the infected is also doing that herky-jerky walk in the final climactic scene one of the soldiers the one with the hat right and Um, you know our our good friend Frank is also initially that's there's this level of spasming and and Mm -hmm. vocal spasming too just like basically rage which is what the infected are essentially Mm -hmm. and it's not it's not any sort of muscle movement that's under his control like he's almost pulling out his hair and and he's not yet running toward them um so maybe that there maybe there are stages right that we don't that aren't fully explained within this but it's just kind of assumed and so and that's that's fine it's just it's a little bit inconsistent with one minute they're sprinting and the next they're like can't really move one of their legs in a way that would even allow them to sprint, you know? Right. So uh, one other thing that's very important to point out, these are not your canonical zombies because they can be killed by being shot in the chest. Right. They are essentially infected humans who have contracted a very fast-moving virus that is that can be contracted just by a drop of blood. And it is implied. It's never really scene, but although maybe in the very end of the movie, we see that they can starve to death. Yes. So they are not they are not zombies in the traditional sense. There isn't that idea that they will go on forever, but in the meantime, they are fucking terrifying. Yes, they are. So, in terms of really important scenes and things that we wanted to talk about in our review, I think just a very powerful scene is, well, it's the initial opening scene with Jim where we first see Jim and and Jim is laid out on a hospital bed, just completely naked. And I guess maybe we should should circle back to just the very beginning of the movie, which basically how, how this madness all begins is that there is a lab with with chimpanzees and they are being tested upon and they are watching all sorts of rage movies and and examples of humans being terrible to each other so there's a lot of war footage and and riots and things like that and these very well-meaning animal rights activists break into the lab and want to release the test subjects and the scientist there basically says don't do this they're all infected this is just going to be very bad and they they don't ignore him and they let the monkeys free. And so the beginning of all of that we see we see one of the one of the chimps basically tied down to the bed watching all these scenes. And so all hell breaks loose and then the next scene that we see is with with our our main character and hero Jim lying attached to a lot of tubes and things on a hospital bed completely naked. So it's there's definitely a very there there's an obvious relation to seeing the monkey attached to the bed and then seeing Jim attached to the bed. 
However, Jim is just kind of on his own and very confused. He he has some stitches in his head and he looks like he, he's had head injury and he's trying to figure out what happens. So he starts making his way out of the abandoned hospital, which is shockingly clean and there are no bodies around. There's no real indication what happened. It's, it almost seems like a dream sequence that, that, that you're just walking around alone. But you do see um, the the there's a hospital bed on its side. Like I feel like that really makes that first glimpse into the hallway. Right. I mean, like you know something's wrong. There's no question yeah. about it. But it's, I mean, you, I only thought about the first time I saw this. I only thought about this in retrospect, and then of course you start analyzing things. But there really there's no indication that things are. There, there's an indication that things are dire, but you don't know exactly what happened. For all you know, something happened in that specific hospital and they just abandoned it. Yeah, so. there's no bodies anywhere. It's kind of it's kind of weird. And I don't think that we see any blood either, which is, you know, a little bit surprising given what's been going on. I know, yeah. But I feel like that was part of them just drawing out this... Uh... And I think, I mean, I think all of this and... and Again, I think people who are very interested should listen and watch, listen to the commentary while watching the movie. It's fascinating, and it's on the extras. You can get it on iTunes, I believe, and also on Amazon Prime. But um, it's Danny Boyle and Alex Garland, Garland talking about some of this stuff. And basically, they explain that this was a an artistic decision to make it as weird and lonely for this character and for the audience to watch him as he's discovering what happens. The obvious comparisons that I think we make also, given this introduction to Jim, Jim's character, uh, waking up on the hospital bed, Walking Dead, uh, I don't, and I don't know if um, Robert Kirkman, is that his name? Yes. Robert Kirkman? Yep. I don't know if Kirkman uh, made that decision consciously or... If he just felt like waking up in a hospital bed is kind of like the only way to get into this environment, twenty days or you know several, you know, some measure of time into the experience that creates, uh, it, it's like a time warp for the audience, and so well, right, just, and by by a character not knowing what's gone on, the audience then can find out with them, and that's mm-hmm. that's important, I think. Kirkman and also, I mean, they they have said that the whole hospital bed opener and the idea of somebody being in a coma and not knowing what's gone on is an homage to um, the Day of the Triffids, which I have never seen. Oh, I've, I actually saw that. Well, not really recently, but it's a it's a miniseries um, from like the eighties British TV, and it is not exactly how that movie begins. Uh, the guy goes in for, he's he's in a hospital though for for ha- to have some surgery on his eyes, so his eyes are bandaged, and uh, everybody at the hospital is out watching this meteor shower, and uh, the meteor shower creates these lights in the sky that then make everybody who watched the, this uh, meteor shower blind, and the meteors also happen to have a giant human eating plants inside them ah so okay so, so, yeah. so it's, kind of a bad day it's basically kind of day if, if you're you're in a hospital getting something done you, you gotta hope that some sort of crazy apocalyptic event doesn't happen yeah so dude wakes up and again yeah like everybody he's he's the only he's one of the few people in england left with sight and it's actually a really interesting storyline 
obviously 80s BBC or ITV or whatever channel it was made by, not the, the greatest uh, for effects back in the day, but still an interesting story. Well, and I mean, I think we, and and this is something that directors and, and writers put in for fans are these references to other things in the genre. So yeah. I do think that that's what Danny Boyle and, and Alex Garland was doing. They were doing here. And I also think that that's what Kirkman was doing with walking dead. Um, there are only these like little Easter eggs and, and little references to that super I, nerdy fans can be like, yeah, I know what that's from. Uh, while I would, I, I definitely can see that. I, I feel like the introduction of a character into the zombie apocalypse is not at the level of an Easter egg anymore. That's, no, it's, it's not. Not you're right. It's you're too right. big. It's too big of a of an element. So it becomes more of, a, you know, a significant borrowing. Okay, I'll, I'll give uh, you that. I guess I just think I don't think Kirkman did it and didn't know like because everybody remembers that scene. Yeah. From, yeah. from twenty eight days later, and I just don't think you can mistake that for anything else. So. It's, that's true. Um, and, and But it, it's it's also super effective, though. It like, is. Why not? It is. You know? And, you know, there's many differences, obviously, between these two things. But... but and the way that they, they play out. Obviously, The Walking Dead's opening... And we're going to review that episode eventually, too. But that opening scene in the hospital is much more apparent what's been happening, right? right? There's bullet holes in the walls. There's it's, it's, uh, There are dead people and, like, eaten skeletons right. uh, lying around. It's a little bit of a different exposition in that case. Yeah. But... So, so in any case, so, so we've got Jim basically wandering about trying to put the pieces together. And, you know, it always, this scene was always so amazing to me because it's, I think Killian Murphy plays this very well because he's just come out of a coma. He's obviously weak and you can see that, you know, so much so that he's just trying to like, he, he finds like the sodas that have been coming out of the machines and, and is scavenging a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, keeps yelling out, hello. He does a lot of hellos. A lot of hellos that freak me out a little bit. And then he starts basically walking his way through London. Did you spot the uh, the pedestrian? I did. And and it, it it's pretty funny, actually. But It must have pissed off. I mean, I don't know. Actually, a- after watching this with a little more eye for detail, there was a couple of things that they probably should have noticed in the dailies, you know, and gotten it out of there. Yeah. And there's definitely a pedestrian on fleet street when he's walking towards St. Paul's cathedral. Almost certainly. And but way in the distance, it, it, it was in the distance, but it was there and I saw it too. But I think that this just sort of goes to the, the point that I think it must've been extraordinarily hard to film all these scenes and make London appear abandoned. Um, Mm -hmm. And from what everything that I've read about how they did this, they basically, they did it in the very early morning for the most part, but they also only had sometimes as little as 15 minutes to film certain scenes. And they had people holding off traffic, holding off people. And, and Danny Boyle even enlisted the help of, he would very deliberately have the people that were holding back the crowd be attractive women because he felt like people would be more likely to listen to them or something like that. Um, but just, I think that considering what they had to deal with and how desolated they, they actually made it look, mm-hmm. um, they did a great job. They did a great job. And I mean, now when you look at filmmaking and, and different things, I, I think in terms of abandoned scenes, vanilla sky comes to mind when Tom Cruise drives into times square and 
Mm-hmm. You know, you think about things like that, where it's just heavily populated areas, trying to make it look like nobody's there is that that has got to be such an amazing feat of organization and just making deals with a lot of different people. So, you know, getting getting the bus, the double decker bus turned over um, right by Downing Street mm-hmm. um, and then having to promise that you'll be able to get it out of the way in 15 minutes flat. Oh, yeah. I mean, on a five million dollar budget, that's that's a lot. Accomplished a lot. That's, yeah, that's a ton. And then, yeah. you know, and these are all like the busiest parts of London. Right. This, is, that's... this was no joke. But I also think that that's why this these particular scenes made such a huge impact. I think that they were so powerful to see, you know, the London Eye is just sort of frozen and he's just walking across these abandoned bridges and all these mm-hmm. very well-known landmarks. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was it was very well done. The use of those kinds of scenes in the in the trailers that also built a lot of the hype that made this movie as successful as it as it was in the box office. I mean, as well as the fact that the movie was probably critically well received. So yeah, so we, then we've got abandoned London, and you've got this character that is just trying to make sense of the world. And I mean, one thing I want to mention here, just just to talk about how all of this was unleashed, is that. The opening scene, ostensibly, the research lab that is broken into is researching something to to make a drug or a treatment for to treat a condition like depression or something like that. You don't know what it, they don't ever say that that's what they're doing, but it it doesn't really seem to make sense that they would just want to have these raging humans running about, right? Exactly. So, I mean, you have these scientists that are, are trying to work on something. There's a reason why they're studying these animals. And, and the scientist says, we have to, to know how it works to, to come up with a cure. And the animal activists are not having any of this. They're just seeing that these animals are being tested upon and they don't care that they're infected with something. There were some very good intentions here. One sort of helping out mankind with some sort of medicinal cure or pharmaceutical cure. And then these animal activists who think they're helping out, you know, helping out by, by not letting these animals being tortured, but in fact they unleash the horrible infection on mankind, at least in the UK. Uh, Yeah. I, I don't even know that you can argue that the scientists had good intentions because they created, you would have to assume that they created this rage disease in the first place. So uh, they don't, I mean, yeah, they're trying to find a cure, but it's for something that they already did. Right. But you get the sense that this is, they're trying to, the reason why they did this was to try to treat something else with humans. And they never say what that is, but mm. maybe it is, you know, I, I think maybe. I think it's a commentary on, on a few different things here. But in any case, it, it was in case, in the case of the activists, it's people with some very good intentions who unintentionally cause a zombie plague. Mm -hmm. Um, but we are responsible for this nobody's responsible in in some different types of movies it's an outside thing it's an alien meteor or the devil the devil or some form of radiation but this is definitely on us as humans and this is not i don't think this is like abnormal uh if you've seen the crazies that's another one that's basically blamed on the u.s government Right. You ever and seen the crazies? I have seen the crazies, and then also Walking Dead. Although within the within the comic books, they don't really talk about why all this is happening. Right. And in the series, they obviously do that at the end of the first season. So, and it's it's 
again, something that humans have unleashed upon themselves. So it's a common theme that seems to come up a lot. I mean, you've got to, you, you don't have to address it, but I think people want to know at least the broad strokes why this is happening. They do, but I think, you know, from, from Kirkman's perspective in those comics, I think he, he kind of liked messing with people and not giving them an answer. <laughs> so Yeah, because honestly, if you were a Joe Schmo, Rick Grimes survivor in Georgia, what are the odds that you would find out why this was happening? Right. They didn't go to the CDC in the books. So, I mean, there was very little chance of finding out. You have bigger problems to deal with, which is day-to-day survival, you know? Right. But, I mean, even in, in and we'll talk more about contagion and different things later, but Stephen King in The Stand, the other thing that they do is go, one of the things that they do is go to the CDC to try to, in Vermont well, to, right. to find out why this is. Well, that's where they find uh, my namesake, right, Stuart. Stuart he's sitting there in a. Isn't he still in the in like one of those rooms? Yeah, when he's they locked or? in because he was one of the only survivors from the initial outbreak. So yeah, um, So there's a reason why they 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 find him, but it's definitely, I think, there there it's the plot point where humans have to find an answer to why this happened. If if I may also just backtrack. Like Jim, Selena, Frank, Hannah, they also, none of them have any idea how this happened either. And the only reason we do is because we have that benefit as the audience um, that we were there, you know, like with our omniscient uh, perspective, we, we saw how it happened. But, but they don't know. If, we, if they had just started the movie in the hospital bed, we would have no idea. That's true. And And would that make it a worse movie? I don't know. I think it's interesting to see why it happened initially as the audience and then to hear what the characters think have happened because Selena at one point just talks when she's first talking to Jim about it basically basically says we don't know it started we started seeing reports and then it was everywhere so I don't think that any of the the main characters really know what's going on I don't think they're really what wondering about the why they're just wondering about how the hell do we deal with it so that's that's definitely an interesting uh, aspect to this to this film and what are some other? Uh, we've we've already talked about how uh, Henry West was going to use uh, women at the mansion to to give his soldiers hope for the future. Well, and I think that that particular, and we don't need to get too much more into that. Except I think that these are these are always these seem to be this particular theme seems to be come. It seems to come up a lot with movies that involve the fall of civilization like what is civilization and mm-hmm. apparently in a lot of and and i do agree to some extent a lot of this means that what what tends to happen in, in a lot of zombie movies and and post-apocalyptic type of movies is that somebody some military person not always military though i think there's always just one character or a few characters that basically want to do some really immoral things because they can now and in this case one of those things is that they want to basically start a rape camp this happens as well in the stand um so i don't think that i I don't think it's like an an unusual thing to bring up in these sorts of of movies and books and things like that um so one of the things about this military encampment and the seven or so survivors who are there uh is and when you brought this up, H.A., when we were talking about this, is that it's this is part of Alex Garden and Danny Boyle's negative perspective on humanity and that only one of the soldiers is a dissenter 
towards Henry West's vision for the future. Right. And Henry West and the other soldiers, apparently. And he's the second in command, which I guess, you know, gives him a little bit of authority and why they perhaps tolerate him longer than you would expect, given given Henry's level of intolerance for anybody speaking back to him. But yeah, but they're already making fun of him and they are. Um, but it's, you know, it. you get the sense that when this character is dissenting and his name is Sergeant Farrell, you get the sense when he's dissenting that they've all heard this before and they kind of are, are they kind of give him a lot of crap about it. Yeah, well, there's there's a once we're introduced to this group, there's a lot of uh, looks and and discussions that kind of um, play on the fact that they've probably yeah that they've they've had these they've had conversations about this stuff before that probably weren't unanimous in their endings and now they have the women the the target that they're after are with them and so now they can't talk about it openly but there's a lot of oh there's definitely um, a, under the surface there is a lot on. of subtext going on. Yeah. Which is making it actually does a very they do a very good job. And again, I think all these actors were so amazing in how they they portray their characters. But there was so much that was done without any sort of um, dialogue here that mm-hmm. just created an enormous level of tension and anxiety. But you weren't really sure. But you weren't sure exactly why. Yeah. And it yeah, was exactly you're just what was fucked up about this, like essentially because uh, Frank has died, spoiler alert, Frank's dead. But now Jim, Selena, and Hannah are, in theory, rescued. Like, this should be a fucking high point in the movie. But you don't feel uh, that way. No, you feel like... You feel terrified you, the for them. The whole time they're with the soldiers, you feel a weird... And, and a lot of it's, like, with looks and, uh, you know, way things are framed. And, and they're, yeah, the, obviously the characters are all struggling with the fact that Frank's just died. And Frank basically represented their hope or their happiness and he was their dad. And so that's tough. Right. But they, Um, I mean, they, you know, they, they come into this little encampment and they're able to take hot showers. Yeah. So this should be a great time. Right. Like they're able to, to do all these things that they definitely haven't been able to do up until this point. And supposedly they are safe because this is just all, you know, walled off and they've got people who are trained with weapons. Like it seems very, it seems it seems like they should be a little bit more celebratory, oh, but given you know the loss of Frank, I, I also understand why they're not as excited as as you would normally expect. Yeah, to quote Frodo Baggins, uh, these people look fair but feel foul. True. <laughs> Although they actually don't look that good either. The one dude's hair—what's what's going on? on? Like, His, he's got patches and stuff coming out of it, and it looks. Is it like scurvy? Is, I don't know. Are, are we supposed? To... I mean, my thought, my only thought about it was that perhaps he was so stressed out that this is a result of the stress. Well, you know that's reasonable, but yeah, but it's Otherwise, noticeable and it's distracting. You notice it. The a few worst times. haircut ever. Like, what? Why not just cut your hair uh, every day? Why? Why have patches? Don't have patches. Right. Um, and then, um, you know. Just just in other sort of themes, you know, we, we definitely see this and it's talked about and different characters say different things about this. But it's sort of in this post-infected world, what is really worth living for? And, and is it just a total game of basic survival? Yeah, um, um, you know, because we're talking about characters that don't have 
real access to any sort of fresh food and they're they're not really able to sleep safely generally you know they're they're definitely all the things that that they held on to and what civilization gave them are gone um mm-hmm. you know like even and especially i think for jim this after he has met Selena and Mark and they basically say, dude, we are all fucked. He, mm-hmm. he really still doesn't want, he is in complete denial and he's holding on to the idea that maybe his parents are alive. Mm-hmm. Um, which brings us to our, our next topic, which is, which is sort of the, the things that appear to be refuges or, or are refuges during the film and then false refuges. I guess the, for whatever reason, he walks into a church in downtown London, and uh, this is where you're first introduced to the to the infected. It's still daylight, so there's none out in the streets, and he's been out walking around basically since dawn, uh, yelling at everybody and, <laughs> or yelling for people. And here you see just like piles and piles of bodies. Uh, you're like, oh, okay, here they are. Right, and then and this is the first point where he actually realizes how how bad the world he has woken up in is and well yeah that realization and him being chased through the streets of london are definitely like right next to each other right (laughs) like he shows up at this church and there's this thing spray painted on the wall that says the end is fucking nigh no sorry the end is extremely fucking nigh and then he encounters pre-zombie which is you know you see him pause because he doesn't want to give offense to the father you know the the priest and then he has to hit him in the head. That was that was pretty funny. I mean, that was actually another like haha, but oh fuck moment. You're you're like, "Oh, he's like, "Oh, sorry, father." <laughs> After he Yeah, like he, he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." And he's so apologetic and he has like that guilt. So Yeah. He's still not fully understanding what's going on. And you yeah. know, I was kind of thinking about it. Were you to come across somebody that was just and I mean, I guess I don't want to say rabid, but if somebody was just you know, off kilter and, and coming at you, eventually you're going to hopefully defend yourself. So I was, I was proud of Jim for, for knocking him in the head with those sodas. But well, one of the one of the primary tropes of zombie movies is that nobody's ever seen a zombie movie. True. You're right. So every time you see someone exhibiting zombie like, uh, you know, at, you know, characteristics, you're going to be like, oh, what's the matter with you? Do you need help? Right. Let me help you. Oh, I'm dead. Uh, except Jim actually reacts uh, Pretty well. better than most. Pretty He's well. like, um, no, I'm going to fucking slug you with my bag of soda cans. And then apologize very nicely and run. <laughs> so, um, and, then, and then he quickly comes into contact with Selena and Mark after this. And they, they help him burn up the zombies, thankfully. And they, they blow up a huge gas station as well, I believe. And then the next refuge yeah. is there is their little hole, which is under the tube station, um, which is basically an abandoned shop that they ha- they have like a grate, like security grate that they can it's, put down. But it still such seems a travesty in terms. It doesn't of seem like a good idea. Hideouts. In fact, even when they got in there, I was like, this just doesn't seem like this would. I mean, it's they they go down underground, and you would think that Selena and Mark would know that. The zombies. Underground is a dark place. Yeah, exactly. And then you're not. There's no exit that I'm aware of. Maybe there was that works. Other than into the tunnels, which are dark, and I would assume crawling with the uh, infected. Mm-hmm. This is another issue, uh, and maybe it's kind of related to this refuge. Why is there still power a month after? Granted, from infection to 28 days later, maybe all 
power grids haven't completely failed, but yeah, there may be backup in certain parts of of the city. Uh, there may be more of an explanation for this than we know, but I I thought of that as well, and I wasn't quite sure because mm. it doesn't make sense. But yeah, maybe the, the the London Underground runs on its own generator that you know has several months of power. I don't know. Either way, they've got power. They've got candy. <laughs> And they've got a, a a really flimsy grate and door situation that I'm just uncomfortable with. And they're like they're trying to that's their home. Well, and then they're also trying to impress Jim with the gravity of the situation. And it to me, for people that have been surviving this long, this just seems like a really stupid hideout. So, but it is. I mean, nothing happens to them while they're there. So I guess I was wrong. So yeah. Yeah. Um, but then they make the decision because Jim just really doesn't believe them and they go on to the next quasi refuge, which is his family home. And we just talked about that a little bit. But, you know, they go to this home that just seems extraordinarily cozy. It seems like a childhood home. You'd be really just you'd be so happy to be able to come home to that. So for him to walk in that door must have just been a relief, I think. And Jim is is still so fucking out of it when they're talking about like, oh, it's getting dark. We'll have to sleep here tonight. He's like, oh, well, you guys can take the guest room. And they're like, no, no we were all staying together. Right. And <laughs> he's just but, his level of not getting it is still so high. At right. This point. But I would like to point out that. So when they come to this house, I think he definitely still has this idea that his parents might be alive. And when yeah. he walks in, it's uh, and he starts holding his arm over his nose and you know that something's not he's not going to be greeted by anything good when he walks through his parents' door. And I thought it was really sweet though the note they left him. Yeah, and it was just um I thought that that gave such a it, Don't wake up. It, yeah, it was a <laughs> we love you. Now we're sleeping with you. Don't wake up. And It's like too late. Too late, you know, and and I think that that is such a I think that that's a very heavy but very emotional scene. Mm-hmm. And it was very well done overall. So then. But yeah, Jim's family home turns out not to be the best hole up site either. Well, I think it could have been better. But, you know, they they didn't really explain to Jim, Selena no. and Mark that that apparently zombies are attracted to a tiny little candle of flame, flame flicker, if you will. Yeah, they Honestly, it was in their best interest to tell him exactly how to behave. Right. And, and if you have a, a new zombie survivor that you're trying to train wouldn't you give him that basic rule god yeah that just seemed like quite a big oversight for such survivors so that's a good point uh yeah so they they kind of uh that was self-critiquing mark mark paid for that one yes so so mark definitely paid for that with his with his life but that also showed apparently how badass selena was in in this i mean apparently it was it's kind of well i'm still i'm still harping on the the oversight of the light thing because then they act like jim well she acts like jim's totally stupid for doing that but they never told him so how would he know yeah yeah so then she's still reminding him of what an asshole he is and how quickly she's going to kill him when they see frank and hannah's apartment yes she basically says i'm not even going to wait a heartbeat i won't pause i won't i won't even worry about it you'll be gone just like i did to mark She's not letting this one go too quickly. So, but then, uh, so Frank and Hannah are in a tower block, which has weird plastic on the front door. I don't know what that's about. And then all those shopping carts, and it seems kind of well protected. There are 
uh, actual like wrought iron gates in front of every apartment door. Right. Which if I lived there before the apocalypse, I would think this is kind of sketchy. But now I'm thinking that's a good idea. A great idea. (laughs) I need to get a metal grate in front of my front door. But I should, you know, I should say this whole seeking refuge. So Jim is brought down by the one little candle flame and then they're they're, you know, attracted to, to Frank and Hannah's apartment because they basically put a signal up. So they kind of mm-hmm. go up there not knowing exactly what they'll find. And then that does turn out to be a refuge that does not get attacked. But there's other drawbacks to this particular safety zone. Yeah. So it's it's obviously it's kind of safe or at least defensible. But it hasn't rained in 10 days, which I thought was a f- it's another one of those like, ha ha, oh, but we're fucked kind of Yeah, because they're in London and London rains. And it hasn't. Um, so then they're they're they hear the the wonderful what seems to be a very happy moment when they hear this. Basically, it's an automated military message. Is that what you like? What you would call it, like an emergency broadcast, almost? Uh, yeah, but it's like a little more emotionally delivered, right? Yeah. And basically, it's somebody saying. Come to come to meet us in Manchester, and we have a cure for the infection, or we have the answer. Basically, we have the answer. It it's actually cure. a very duplicitous fucking message. We They're like, the oh, answer. we have the answer. And then uh, Henry West is is talking to uh, Jim later. He's like, we do have the answer, though it might not be what you expect. Definitely not be- what you expect because yeah. it it involves us raping your friends. Right. So, um, but this how- is but this is a point I think in the story when first of all Hannah kind of makes herself not kind of she makes herself known as a voice within this team, and when they actually do start acting like a team, even though they're mm-hmm. arguing, they start planning out stuff. Mm-hmm. To, to how how they would get there, and then it suddenly and we learn that Frank is a cab driver, and that and... they have access to a car, and suddenly Selena feels a little bit more friendly toward them when before she was basically telling Jim that the two were a liability and they should just yeah. cut loose and leave them there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although it's also another funny moment where Frank admits that, like, yeah, sound really carries in my apartment, and I heard everything you said, and yes, we are. We need you more than you need us. That's true. <laughs> that's, and he still, but still he relays it in a very good way. And, and again, Frank is just this character that it's, it, everybody loves. Totally lovable. Uh, and, and this is, this I feel like introduces the second act of the movie where basically everything is awesome. Doesn't matter how messed up it is. He like puts the meter on in his cab and that's hilarious. And everybody's laughing and it, chortling oh, even. <laughs> They're just, they're a bit giddy after they meet Frank and Hannah, so. And one of the refuges that we, that happens uh, during this period is also that grocery store. Yeah, you're right, because there's there's this moment when they they get out of the city, they've gotten through the, you know, some, some scary bits, and they see this abandoned grocery store, and they get very excited because they have shopping spree, right? And there's power inside it's light and there's no zombies there and yeah why not they get to they fill up their carts with as much stuff as they they like all their favorite things it seems this this movie is peppered with these moments of just like right there's nothing to worry about but uh, i feel like this is we'll talk about this a little more later but it's just it's it's weird unrealistic i might argue but probably absolutely necessary for this movie to leave you with the feeling it leaves you with well right but i also think that this when we talk about this later but i think that this is just 
you know, also one of those. These are these are people that just recently came from civilization, like barely a month before they had been enjoying all the wonderful things. This is like a huge new reality. So I think it's normal for people to just keep seeking that comfort and that security. And that's pretty much what they do during the entirety of this movie is go from refuge to refuge. And yeah, well, so after the grocery store, in a way, the highway is a refuge because it's also curiously absent of car wrecks and they can just drive through these empty roads the whole way. And again, I think that this was an artistic decision that the director made just trying to really hit everybody over the head with the fact that this is the end. This is empty, empty London and empty. That's the, is that the M1, I believe? That they, Who knows? One of those but, M's. But they, it, it, none of this was done with CGI. They basically got permission to close off in sections and sort of rolled it down with like, it was sort of like a a rolling abandonment of it so that they could film it. But they had to do it very quickly because they weren't able to, to close off this entire roadway because it's a main mm-hmm. roadway in Britain, which if you are over there, know that that's what it is. And it's still pretty cool for all of us who don't drive over there to, to see that just this total, totally empty swatch of highway. And then in the distance, you see this just total destruction of, I believe Manchester in the distance. So. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually they do get to that. Right. And, but also another one of the refuges, which seems like the most counterintuitive right. is this just ruins of an Abbey in the countryside um, where, they they talk about their feelings. There's like wildlife in the form of Frank, of course, points out these horses that he says, they're just great. They're not infected. This is awesome. This is like Frank's hopeful aura that he puts out all the time. Right. And those are the first animals other than humans that they have seen. So that's and a pretty big birds, deal. And yeah. birds, um, which, but I mean, you know. Lar- and rats. There's a whole scene with rats right, in but- the tunnel. But I mean larger mammals that humans like. Some people have bird issues and some people have rat issues. But these are basically helper animals. Like dogs and horses tend to help humans. So Yeah. But it's what's interesting is that they're like, are they infected or not? And so this is apparently um, because rats were scared of the infected. Right. So, Uh, So apparently this is only a human primate virus. Well, maybe or maybe not. If rats are scared of them, what's to say that rats cannot also be infected? Or would infected just kill rats because they're so angry at them? Well, probably because they're so angry at them, and it's a food source. So, but if you think of this virus as as an uh, or this infection as a living thing that wants to propagate itself, it it doesn't seem like uh, every it just as often seems to kill the recipient in terms of being raged out upon as it does uh, transmit itself. Oh, you know you're I mean? true. You're right there, you know. Uh, so it's, it's you know, not all of these kind of viruses make sense because they, they tend to kill their hosts. Um, and this one would kill, basically, it would eventually kill all of its hosts because they cease to be animals or, or creatures that can maintain themselves. Right, and then it would remain to be seen whether it would mutate into something a little different than its initial, than its initial transmission uh but another another uh what i thought interesting element of this abbey hideaway is well jim has some weird dreams um and is lulled back to sleep by frank 
but also they all have to uh, take drugs in order to like go to sleep because they're so stressed out. But this seems like a bad idea to me. Uh, it truly bothered me. It's a terrible idea. <clears throat> and Jim points out, he's like, "Oh yeah, even if we do get attacked, we're not going to care." Right. <laughs> like that's that's true. And I guess if if you if you if things seem that grim, and yet you're kind of okay with it, well, why not? I guess. But then, what's the whole point that they've been doing all this? survival up until this point so that seemed like a strange comment from somebody who was the most optimistic character i think until you meet frank but you know that that was an interesting comment to make a little strange i thought but it also introduces the um the drugs yes the drugs and the fact that selena was a chemist which is basically a pharmacist just for those of you don't speak english you know british and then I would say the next the next refuge or what we think is a refuge is the, the military mansion. And we talked a little bit about this. And they they basically go to the, the meeting point where they were told to go in the emergency bro- emergency broadcast. And it's a pretty horrible part of the movie because it's where Frank dies. Yeah, um, it's also horrible because this is where Frank loses hope. True, uh, because it looks like it's abandoned. Right, so they think and, they've been misled, or they think something happened between the time the emergency broadcast happened and the yeah. time they got there. And in fact, before they they went to do this, Selena brought up the fact that this could just be yeah. that they could all be dead at this point. And so, because Selena is so skeptical at the beginning, but by the point that she gets there, she's much more hopeful, and she's mainly hopeful because of Frank and Hannah. Yeah. And, and and now we're watching Frank spaz out like, oh, I'm so mad. Like, uh, this is definitely like one of the lowest points um, morale wise of the film. Right. Because he's never exhibited this sort of negativity or anger. And then you sort of see his anger and it's hard not to draw this parallel between the rage that he's showing and the rage the infected show. Mm-hmm. You don't see this out of him. You don't see Frank lose hope and and then this becomes apparent that he's had he's had a moment he's had a day and he goes to walk it off at which point one of those horrible carrying eating birds which okay this is where i'm not that clear okay the bird is eating a dead dude who apparently has infected blood in it but the bird does not appear to be angry it's not an angry looking bird i again think that it's implied by all of this. I don't think that anything other than humans and primates are carrying this virus or are able to contract and, and pass it on at this point. I think. I guess I have to give you that based on this scene. And I think that that is, again, you know, one of those things that humans wrought this on themselves type of a thing. Um, and I also think it maybe is a little piece of hope that. It's not everything is not terrible because, man, if they had to battle zombie horses and zombie crows, that would just suck. It would be so tiring, honestly. I mean, there wouldn't be any sort of refuge if this was everything. So I think that they just made a decision. Zombie rats. Terrifying. So anyway, so Carrion Crow drops the little drop into Frank's eye and then. He still shows himself to be such a a great person and father here because Hannah sees 
or or comes up to him shortly after this, probably to talk to him about his little outburst earlier. And he pushes her away and he tells her he loves her and he tries to have her remember that as the last thing. Yeah. And it's it's a hugely emotional moment and an upsetting moment. Um, and then this, I think that this whole scene is just such a huge, this is the, the big shift in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, this is obviously the beginning of the third act, right? Uh, in my opinion, because because all of a sudden the fucking soldiers show up and like, where were they when they drove up? Like, why didn't they say, "Oh, hey guys, we're the soldiers. We're here to help right. you." They were. Who knows where they were? Maybe they were off having a coffee break. But but basically, our our most hopeful character just dies here because he's infected, and the shul- soldiers take him out. Um, but and and uh, another important thing to. Uh, appreciate here is that jim is very hesitant in killing him true and selena is holding hannah and selena who we know is not afraid to kill her friends because we've already seen it happen she also is not up there no and she she actually tries to push it off on jim she tells jim to do it so to me this is like the point where their storylines not storylines but their personas their start to shift a little bit badassery that like crosses over both of them are unable to act here. True. But for the rest of the film, Jim is the man of action. Selena is not a lot at more all. passive. A lot very more passive. passive. And this is kind of where they're both equally passive. But Jim has already done his. He's already killed one person um, uh, at the cheeseburger shack, and so Jim has kind of already gotten his uh, cut his teeth. And Selena, for whatever reason, is becoming more human. Uh, so I felt like that was a very uh, telling moment also where the soldiers basically had to step in and kill Frank because maybe Jim never would have gotten the balls to do it. Right. And I think he may not have because he definitely viewed Frank as a father, as I think they all did, and mm-hmm. even called him dad when he was in when his was little stupor. But, you know, <laughs> that was yeah. definitely a very dad-like thing that yeah. Frank did with him and comforting him and, and making him go back to sleep. So. Yeah. So on, but so then they they get to the mansion, which we haven't even. No, we haven't to. gotten to it. This is <laughs> sorry for the extended podcast, but this is a huge movie, so I think we can be excused. Mm-hmm. Um, but they get to the military mansion, which seems like probably the most secure refuge that they've come across at this point. It's got barbed wire. It's got mil- trained military people with weapons. It's it's. Can I interject? Sure. Real quickly. When you looked at this building, it's just, I mean, do you, do you look at this building from a purely objective outside of the movie perspective and think, oh, yeah, that's where I would want to survive a zombie apocalypse? No, it seems like a strange choice. I, I thought this even when they were coming in because it's like they, they, they're introduced to this building by being driven in and there's the one soldier that pulls a little tiny barricade thing out of the way. And I'm like, how would that keep out the infected? Why do you even bother having that? Yeah. So you have to kind of question why they did this. And I guess, I mean, there was sort of a wall that is somewhat of a fortification. but it, We're in England. England has castles. Well, right. So it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense for a, a group who is trained military to decide on this as their their bastion of security. Well, maybe it's because their they're trained military... And what they think about are like clear firing lines and, you know, a minefield where minefields are actually effective against this kind of 
zombie, quote unquote. But so I will tell maybe you, it does make sense. It's, but no, but it's know. funny that you bring that up because when I first saw this movie and I saw them go into this place, I the alarm bells for me started to go off that perhaps these military these trained military soldiers or the trained soldiers were not actually acting as they were trained. And part of it was the building they chose. And then, you know, it was, it was almost like, okay, civilization has fallen. So why don't we move into this very well appointed house? Yeah. They they moved into a manor instead of something more defensive. Right. It didn't seem to make sense to me. So I, I very much in my head was, was thinking that this all was not right with this situation and that Mm. our heroes were perhaps in some danger. Um, and then the second thing, which is just pointing to the fact that I am a super nerd, is the big sculpture that is right in the foyer when they come in, um, which is of Laocoon, which is a, a Greek uh, character, or sorry, it, I think, I, yes, he's a Greek character, um, and that particular rendition of a sculpture is fairly famous, and he was the person in in certain legends that basically said, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And there is this thing that went off in my head. I'm like, oh, they're in so much trouble because this this is definitely a symbol that they're in trouble. So <laughs> so these are the things I notice when I watch films. Is this a, a sculpture that is somewhere famous or why do we know this sculpture? Oh, this sculpture is, you know, he he part of why this the sculpture shows him being taken down with serpents and... So he had a pretty sordid past. I believe the reason why he was uh, strangled and I think then eaten by serpents is because he pissed off some god. He did something bad and and didn't um, he didn't observe certain religious things and certain moral norms, which also could be probably you could make some sort of parallels with the current story going on. So. Hmm. Like he's definitely not um he's punished for for doing terrible things um so it's it's just an interesting bit that i I think Danny Boyle just had fun probably putting it in here <laughs> to, to, a little bit of imagery for yeah, the, uh, for the classically trained for the classically trained and nerdy uh, uh, yeah. amongst his audiences so uh okay sorry i just i just looked into this and so basically apollo sent two sea serpents because um because laocoon had insulted the god by sleeping with his wife in front of the divine image that's harsh yeah pretty harsh so anyway there's that that wonderful imagery which shows you that that all is not as it seems in in the house of major henry west but it's uh, otherwise it's it's doesn't seem like a bad place. They got like you said the hot water and they've got some barbed wire and they've got a minefield. They in a way seem to have their shit together. They seem to be have- one big happy family. They're, you know, they're making a a big feast and they all sit in this very fancy dining room to to eat this feast. But then things yeah. sort of start to go wrong cuz you know their feast is bad. Their feast has bad, rotten food, and Sergeant Farrell starts to whinge about, I forget what he was talking about, that made uh, well Henry go after him. Well, they were basically talking about 
what was happening, what had happened with the infection. And basically the major is saying that he doesn't fully buy that everybody's gone and that this is the, the way of the world permanently. Mm-hmm. And they all just tear him down like that. He's been some sort of new agey, not manly character. Mm-hmm. So, and then I also think we should point out that, that even Henry West basically takes our, our wonderful character out and says, Oh, I'm, I thought you, I, I, I'm sorry that we don't have this huge hospital and we don't have like a brigade of people and, and that your answers that you were looking for aren't here, but we are, we're doing our best to, to rebuild society. Yeah, this is basically where he says, like, yeah, we want your women, right? Not quite there. It's There's a little weird shiftiness. This was the one in the backyard, and he then, there's not really a veiled threat, but he takes him to look at um, oh, Mailer, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's the, used to be in their group, but was turned and is chained up. Chained up to observe what happens to him. So anyway, that's the, that's the last refuge, which is... Uh... Not awesome, as it turns out. So other things that really stand out in this film, uh, other than storytelling and, and where they chose to shoot their... Uh, I mean, maybe they couldn't get a castle for the shot, for the movie. You know, that's, that's definitely an argument. No, um, I, I honestly think that it was a deliberate choice to, to show that these were not tactical. These people had been trained for exactly this sort of... Well, not exactly, but, you know. <laughs> Nobody's, Nobody's been trained, been trained. exactly this. Um, that were trained yeah, I, for I a situation where they do have to defend their position and defend themselves, and they were not doing what they were trained to do. They were definitely mm-hmm. going off the reservation here. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was very clear as as the story unfolds in the military compound. Uh, I would like, though, to talk now a little bit about the filmmaking, uh, a couple of the filmmaking decisions. Um, and this is one, the first one I'm thinking of is, is a situation that I remember seeing in the theater and thinking, what what the fuck just happened there? It makes more sense when you put it in the context of it being by the director of train spotting a right. little bit. But after they leave the grocery store and everybody's all like, giggly and like they've got some kind of happy song playing and the cat the cab is driving on a road through some fields full of flowers. And all those flowers are have been post in post production, I would assume drawn over and made to look extremely bright and it looks very fake it does and it looks very it looks like a van gogh or something of that it doesn't it looks very painterly it does not look like it's it's a live action film it's almost it's not supposed to look real and it's only about probably 15 seconds if if even that but it's very noticeable because nothing about this movie other than the fact you know if you want zombie invasion kind of thing has been uh fantastic right this is definitely strange and i have heard this from a couple of people and then when i thought about it in this way uh, part of it made a little sense to me but so, and um um even my partner bill said something like it's it's very wizard of oz yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. like the whole poppy fields. Well, not just poppy fields, but you know, you've got a bunch of characters going on this journey. They they keep going kind of from refuge to refuge. The answers are supposed to be at this one place, and you know, they kind of go on this journey. And then this seems 
you I this seems very out of the ordinary, obviously, and, and out of sequence with everything else. It seems a little mm-hmm. strange to me. Um it was almost like they were they were dropping some acid in that grocery store. Well, did they have anything to say in the uh, commentary that you watched? They said that they made a conscious decision to do that, and um, it was supposed to just be. And they they liked the way it looked, and I I think it was probably supposed to play. It sounded like it was supposed to play into one of the the alternate endings. So it would have probably made more sense if they had done it and one of the alternate endings happened, but but they weren't fully clear about why they left it in. But another thing that uh, you and I both know, Stuart, was that uh, Jim's flashback when he's at his house and he's thinking about his parents and interactions he had with them, that film quality is, is much better than other things in the film. <laughs> You, you feel you feel like that was better, not better, but distinctly different. It was very different, um, yeah. and they did they filmed that on actual film uh, with Super Eight, and it was almost like it was filmed from first person, also, but not quite right. And so the quality of that was very weird and dreamy and strange. Um, but yes, they did indeed. They did not use the digital camera for that. That was actual film, which is part of why the quality was so different. And then there were a couple of other scenes um, filmed, I feel like, in, like, Twilight or in, like, Weird Light that just came across so grainy. And I think that that was definitely part of using using this, this particular camera that they were using. I think it was a, a Canon XL1. But this is sort of the first generation of digital cameras that could have been even used for a feature film, but it still wasn't, this was one of the drawbacks is that especially in, in lower light, you're just not going to get any detail. And it was, I thought it was painfully obvious and I cringed a little when I noticed those scenes and I noticed as well. And I don't know if like the sound quality and volume would go up and down. It was not consistent. Oh, um, well, I had my volume down pretty low when I was watching it. So um, and it was it was jarring. Part of me wondered if that was deliberate, but part of me just really questioned why that would be allowed. There were parts of this film that seemed to uh, telegraph the budget. <laughs> and perhaps that would, and you know what, that that very well could be it. But it was so yeah. it was for. For a director who is just so into certain minute details, it did surprise me. That well, speaking of which, um, the, I don't know if you noticed the cameraman in the frame during the roadblock scene after Frank was killed. The soldiers walking up to like check the body, and in the bottom right hand side of the screen, you've got you, you, like that's the, what your your eyes are focused on, and then just to the right of that are. I think Hannah and Selena, like looking on horrified, and then to the right of them and lying down on the floor is another person. And at first, I thought it was another soldier, and then I looked a little closer. It's just a guy with a camera. I, I'm like, what? <laughs> I also saw him, and I, I was shocked at it too. And I, I really, I actually kind of paused it and, and went back to do a, like a slow play to make sure that what I was seeing was correct. And I was shocked that he was still in there. Yeah. And they kind of like pan the camera a little bit to the to the left to get him out. But it's weird, uh, right? It, it seems but, so what? strange. 
so every so I'm used to seeing like the boom mic occasionally at the top of the frame. Once in a while, you, you know? see that, yeah. But not a whole cameraman. Uh, <laughs> that was. Uh, I'd never noticed that before. I've seen this film probably six times. But that's the thing. I think that the action generally is so fast and that most people who are watching this probably won't notice it. But you and I have both seen this film many, many times. So we notice we're able to notice a lot of other things because our eyes aren't on what the main action is. Probably this this time around, I was watching it for other details, too. Like usually I just want to like go for the ride and, you know, kind of follow the story and be taken along. And this time I was trying to like take more away from it. Unfortunately, that meant I took away a cameraman. <laughs> I didn't really want to do that. Well, and I do think that with this particular film and the the newer, less less accepted technology, and this is you know arguably one of the the first feature films that they used this in, where they used digital, and it was a really big deal because film cameras were always what was used for this sort of thing. I'm sure there was a lot of learning going on on set. Well, that's still that, framing a shot. Framing a shot, that's a little inexcusable, um, the way that they did that. But I also think, you know, they their budget was severely limited, and you can definitely spot places where they used their budget and places where they didn't, in, in my opinion, anyway. So uh, another element of this film that's important that we have touched on already is, is all the happy scenes. Um, and so I'd just like to quickly talk about each of the happy scenes and how that really takes a movie about a, a, a subject matter that can be and has been in other films super depressing and super grim at all times. And then this one, though, uh, I feel like kind of counterintuitively, it's made it at, a, at, at times... Uh, Lighthearted. Right. And I think that that is also, in in some senses, I think that's the sign of a good horror film and a zombie film, because I think you have to have moments of of joy so that it isn't just so depressing that you're going to just turn it off, <laughs> I guess. But I think it also, they, these sorts of, of of idealistic scenes and interactions with people also give the audience a false sense of security. So you go from high anxiety and zombies chasing people and killing people to to just moments of, of complete giddiness and joy just at some very simple things. So, yeah. um, uh, I, But I think uh, an important argument here is that basically all of the happiest moments of this film happen when, when you're introduced to Frank's character. And I think you're right, and I think that that's part of why he has such an impact on all the characters is that they are experiencing some of these happy moments with uh, basically a daddy character, the best dad mm-hmm. character. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and it, it starts right off when they meet Frank and Hannah in the building and they go up and realize that, that not only has this awesome guy save them from the infected that are chasing them and, and dispatch them in very short order wearing riot gear, but he's also a teddy bear who wants to sit down with them and get to know them and and toast to them with with creme de menthe <laughs> and have a drink yeah have a drink let's 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 celebrate the fact that we're all meeting each other now and and we're here so yeah and i think at this point it's not entirely you're, you're, everybody's in shock at this time except for frank frank is the only one who's like all right now that's taken care of let's sit down and have a chat 
Um, and, and you can see Selena and Jim still kind of like reeling over how they've come to be on this couch. Right. And they're really, but, but Jim is trying very hard to be mm-hmm. polite. Because he's the most, he's the most still connected to the old ways. True, true. So he, he's like, oh, you have a lovely house. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's just a very strange scene after they've yeah. just thrown some infected down the stairs. So, And then another uh, scene of levity that is totally juxtaposed with what they're doing um, is they're all having a crack up while they're driving their cab over a completely unrealistic mountain of cars and rubble and debris inside this tunnel in London. Right. Um, and, and they're having fun. Like it's not just even Jim, even Jim is having fun and he's like, they're being a bit goofy. Um, but it's important to point out that Jim is having fun because as they're driving into the tunnel, he's like, this is stupid. Right, he does. He does call out the the cliche like we we shouldn't be going into this tunnel, guys. <laughs> this is bad. This is the mother of all bad ideas. Right. But then once uh, Frank is like gunning the cab and they drive up on top of the mountain of crap, he's like, "Oh, this is great! What a good time!" Well, and I think we're going to get into logical later logicals later. But since we're talking about this car, I mean. Even the first time I watched this movie, and I definitely felt it this time, I was like, what kind of cab is that? Is that like a monster truck cab that it can get over this like pile of destroyed yeah. cars with, without? That's obviously a very unrealistic scene, but, you know. But it it's... sets it up that they, are, that they are happy, they're going on to something better. They may have popped a tire and have to change it with infected coming after them, but they're going to, you know, yeah. they're going to they're gonna be okay. Or at least there, there's hope there. Yeah. Uh, and then grocery store, as we've mentioned, is another like really happy time where there's apparently absolutely nothing to worry about. Right. And then they get to this this particular scene. I don't know if you felt this, but I feel like this is very much a fantasy that people have sometimes. Like when you're a kid, you know, being able to go to the grocery store and get you know, whatever you want. You know, whatever junk food you want, whatever, and in Frank's case, whatever scotch you want. <laughs> yeah, and, and then he puts down the credit card at the end, and it's and silly. It's, that's another one of those funny moments. Yeah. yeah, and it's silly, and they're all and they're all super happy with each other. They're definitely a team, if not a family. Here, yeah. So, and then all the driving scenes, I think, are very a little bit calming. Like they're they're journeying to something that hopefully is a, a solution to all of this this fear and this destitute world that they've been in they're heading to something that hopefully is survival and is a sanctuary ultimately frank doesn't make it and uh a lot of the happiness is gone ends right there and then you're you're in the the military chapter of the of the movie uh and then uh, extremely ultimately, like at the very end of the film, there's more of that giddiness that, that returns, but it's obviously kind of like been hard fought, hard won. So yeah, let's talk about a couple of the, the logic and plot holes that we noticed uh, in this other, I mean, as we've said, amazing film, but no film is perfect. And so it's, it's, I find it good to kind of look at storytelling and, and how, how some things don't make sense, but I guess creative decisions and story decisions don't always match match up right and you know i i think just from from the get-go when we see 
Jim in this hospital, we touched on this just a bit, but when he's just walking around, there's no bodies in the hospital, there's no real blood, there's no indication that the violent um, uprising of the infected has happened at all. Um, so even when he he's walking around these very empty streets of London, there are no abandoned cars, there's no bodies, there's no indication. It's just, it's, it is like a dream. It's funny that once they start driving out in the cab, they go past uh, more bodies. Right. And, and out in view, like you, you, they go past, I think, basically a, a lot where they've been collecting the dead and other dead bodies just kind of lying around. It's kind of weird that he didn't see any until they started right. to leave London. And there was some indication uh, when I did listen to the commentary because Danny Boyle and, and Alex Garland addressed this and they basically say it was an artistic decision to make everything seem as you know forlorn and abandoned as possible so that the big reveal wasn't ruin- ruined and had much more impact when Jim first encounters the infected. Um, yeah. But they sort of... They said in their heads, the idea was that people were kind of, they were collecting the bodies and putting them in certain places. They were like clearing the streets. But I think given how quickly this supposed infection happened, I don't don't think they'd be able to do this. And nor would they want, why would you be going out in the open to to be gathering bodies when you could get attacked? Um, Yeah. And given given this uh, supposed, you know, creative decision, I feel like. The length of that introductory uh, scene or series of scenes in Deserted London maybe goes on too long. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. But I think that they were really just trying to get that across and perhaps put in all the scenery, all the all the scenes where they managed to close off cool streets in London. Maybe a huge undertaking, (laughs) which is huge. They didn't want to lose it. And I I don't really blame them for that piece, if that's the case. Um, And then one one piece which just has always bothered me about about Jim's little journey around about around abandoned London was when he goes to the newsstand and he picks up a paper and it lists the different things that have been happening about the evacuation and the infected, but he doesn't even read it. He, it, you get to read it long enough to see that there's been an evacuation, but then he just tosses it away. Yeah. It was probably the daily mail. Maybe, maybe like this is bull and maybe it's shock and he doesn't want to, maybe this is a point of denial for him. Yeah. But if you're just trying to wander around and figure out what happens and you you actually find something that tells you, wouldn't you read it? It's a little I weird. I would read the hell out of it, yeah. Uh, you might get terrified, but wouldn't you want to know? Um, but again, from a, a, a creative or an artistic direction, watching a man read a newspaper. Probably boring, yes. Not the most interesting introduction to a film. But maybe he keeps it with him to to peruse later over his morning tea. <laughs> They show him also like picking up uh, money right. in the street. <laughs> I thought that Which was, you know, and I, obviously there's just going to be pound notes lying around or twenty pound notes or whatever it was. That that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, because like yeah, good luck. That's gonna that's gonna do a lot for you. Right. Yeah, we don't see any infected until the church. Right. Despite he, all these long scenes and him screaming in the street. And I mean, I know that they cannot really come out during daylight out on the street, but you would think that there would be some that would try to overcome it when they hear fresh meat yelling to be slaughtered. So that was that just yeah. troubled me quite a bit that they're all silent and, and kind of quiet until he hits the church. And then our first introduction to the... To the infected is uh, slightly incongruous because they don't move very quickly. Um, the the couple that like look up with their mouths open, all weird. When he says, 
hello? They, they, they don't start running at him. They just kind of stare at him. And then they slow, they start to make their way to the door. And then obviously the priest has, has heard him and, and is a little slow to get to him. Long enough for him to hit him with the sodas. But, but again, I mean, I think this is just to set up everything to understand that, that this, this world is definitely not what he was expecting at all. There is conflicting information about lights and fire and things like that within the film that trouble me. And while I was watching this, it still troubled me. So I feel like I should have, I wanted to bring it up, which is, you know, at Jim's house, he has one little tiny candle, which brings on the infected that take out Mark. And it brings them on in like very short order. It seems to be maybe a few minutes. Well, he's having that full flashback. Who knows how long? Well, maybe it was a longer flashback, but still, they see it from a great distance, and they come to eat him because they. Well, they're they're the neighbors, though. So I don't know if it's yeah. They they were just like standing around. Maybe they were the street. (laughs) But still, it was a tiny flicker, Um, and that's fine if they're that sensitive to that. But then I feel like they should have been consistent about how the zombies are reacting to it in other cases. So. The fact that Frank and Hannah, they've been sig- signaling other survivors by having Christmas lights up on their out- outside porch. Part of me feels like that whole building below would have been swarming with infected because they're seeing the lights. Mm-hmm. But instead, Sel- Selena and, and Jim have more than enough time. I mean, at least enough time to get kind of halfway up to where Frank and Hannah are before they make their appearance. And honestly, not to mention that an entire apartment building that is deserted except for Frank and Hannah. Right. Like what happened there? Yeah. So that's a little strange. Yeah. And then yeah. the last piece of this particular issue is the the fire that they build in the ruins of the Abbey. So they're out in the outdoors. And I know that they're in the ruins of the Abbey, but that was a pretty big fire. Yeah. And those give off quite a bit of light and from a distance, like. When we later on see that the the mansion with the with the uh, military the military mansion, the infected keep sort of coming up and and trying to attack. It's a constant thing, and this is at night. So I just I kept thinking that they were going to get attacked while they were in the Abbey ruins, but maybe that was on purpose. Uh, for me, the, the the primary logical issues that I didn't understand were. When Jim goes fully badass and uh, gets over the wall, he somehow gets out of his uh, zip tie because he's like he's got his hands tied at first, and then s- turns on an air raid siren. Which the him turning on the air raid siren or like winding this klaxon, first of all, saves Selena from some rough business at the hands of the soldiers, and. And second of all, draws uh, Henry West and some other the guy with the patchy hair out out to the <laughs> our, to the our nervous shedder, <laughs> whatever the hell that guy is, mangy guy. <laughs> they they come out to the the barricade for some reason, and I'm like, all right, they're inside their supposed secure area. It has a perimeter wall. They have weapons. We see, they have guns. They're fine where they are. Somebody is making noise nearby, but not close enough to to be a problem for them right i and also they had what they wanted which was the ladies ladies. 
They don't care about some guy with no guns. All he has is a siren. That's a death sentence. Well, anyway. my only thought was that he, they were worried that it was going to attract more infected to them, that they'd be overrun. Like, that was the only thing I could think of. But yet, we didn't, I mean, that didn't seem... They have a nightly shooting fest right. against the infected. If anything's going to draw them, it's that. Well, right. Like... So I thought that that was a strange thing as well. Yeah. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then, uh, pursuant to that, they waste bullets. And this is actually a kind of a big zombie apocalypse pet peeve for me. <laughs> People shooting on full auto against zombies, which are not shooting back at them. Uh, full auto is not your preferred method of precision shooting. Every time you shoot a, a weapon that is on automatic, each subsequent bullet that comes out of the uh the barrel forces it up like you know recoil forces the the barrel vertically higher and and makes your uh, makes your shooting less accurate and so every time i see somebody shooting a weapon on automatic it makes me angry <laughs> uh the walking dead oh, well the walking dead my, waste bullets my, like you wouldn't believe it's crazy oh my god they're like stormtroopers how bad they shoot now uh, i but, and it, it, this is an, I mean, I totally agree with you, but I also think, is, especially in this case, I have, a, I have much less tolerance for it because at least with The Walking Dead or in some of these movies, these are people generally that haven't been trained with weapons. Yeah, but these, are but these guys are trained soldiers, so it's sort of there's, strange. There's training, there's training for conventional war and there's training for, for what they're in, um, but they've been doing it for weeks, right? Right, so now it's they not... They should know that... An automatic weapon is designed to suppress the enemy. Um, show me how you're going to suppress a zombie, and I'll, I'll say, go ahead and use that machine gun. The thing is that, as we talked about with World War Z, the book, you can't suppress someone who isn't afraid of anything. So right. just and while use your weapon in the most sensible way and take single shots, and uh, yeah, you don't have to run into these problems that they eventually run into. Right. And I mean, these and again, these are not traditional zombies, so you could. They're even easier to kill. Right. Yeah. So. But it's still it's still not an enemy that's shooting back at you. So you don't have to, like, take cover. You can stand out in the open. You can. Well, they're they're fast, so you can't take too much time, but you can take enough time to line up one shot, one kill and and take care of them uh, in good order. Instead, they they shoot. They've got a 50 cal or, you know, something on, a, on top of a vehicle that one guy's using. He at least is using short bursts, which I, I do appreciate. That was <laughs> nice. And some of them, I mean, a lot of the, the soldiers, they show clips of them shooting on semi-automatic. But th I feel like there's just a lot of shooting going on that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, especially when Henry West goes out uh, to the where Jim's doing the siren thing and just fires on full auto with nothing in sight, just like, yeah, woo cowboy. Right. Uh, doesn't make any sense. And then eventually, first of all, Jones's weapon, he doesn't know how to use it apparently, which is strange, not awesome. And then private bell who, whose name we probably never know, but that I looked at the, the credits and he's the, the black soldier. Yep. He, at the end of the movie, he's like, I don't have any bullets. And they're like, well, come, come on. Well, you were only using them to shoot at corpses before and all this other stuff. So, yeah. It's just they waste a lot of ammo on so useless frustrating. things. But that's good for Jim because that means Jim survives. 
Yeah, but okay, Jim. I if I can touch on this real quick. Jim's use of that rifle. Oh, I know. All right, sure. He sets Mailer free by shooting a, a chain. But then he, like, stabs Jones in the chest and then leaves the gun inside of him. Right. That didn't make sense <laughs> And then at runs all. away from the gun. I'm like, what? what are you? That could come in handy. You've got a bayonet there, at least. At the very least. Very least, yeah. Plot holes. Well, and then the final plot hole I'm going to talk about... Hmm. I think leads in nicely to um, the net, the, our final topic and our wrap up, which is the the alternate endings. And the final plot hole is that Jim, after rescuing the ladies from the soldiers, are you know he's he's pretty he's pretty worked up, um, and and we've now seen him basically just just do this full on transformation from mild mannered bicycle messenger Jim who has a lot of morals to basically there's not a lot of telling him apart from the infected at this point when he rescues the women. Like he's had rage, he's covered with blood and you know, this is, this is kind of of the full, full transformation of Jim at this Mm -hmm. point. And then he and the ladies start to, to escape the, the mansion compound and, and West shoots Jim in the stomach as they're trying to make their escape. And, you know, Jim Jim survives and, and he survives with both the ladies and they they go and, and make rescue letters with, with the ball the ball gowns that the, the ladies had been wearing and, and sheets that apparently are just all around and, and they now have mad sewing skills. But I would argue with you that, that Jim surviving a shot to the belly in this particular world is not necessarily realistic. And then I found out about the alternate endings, which, you know, if, especially if you happen to, there is a, it basically an extras version of 28 days later on iTunes. And part of it is that they have all the alternate endings to this particular movie. And apparently Danny Boyle and Alex Garland had a very different ending idea in mind for this and actually wanted Jim to die in the end and come full circle and the idea is that he got shot in the stomach the women would take him to a hospital to to try to help him and we saw some little flashes of that in in this film that he's mm-hmm. in the hospital and and he's being treated but in the the initial test ending Jim dies and he's left basically alone in the hospital bed, similar to how we saw him in the beginning of the movie. And the two women just sort of walk out the door and that's the end of the movie. Um, But this was the test audience. The test audiences really hated this. They felt like it was just not hopeful. They, they just were, they felt like the, the women were leaving to certain destruction that this was just them giving up, like with both Frank and Jim dying that's it for civilization. They're going to go out and meet certain death. I don't know if, if Danny Boyle and Alex Garland decided to change this. My guess is that there was probably pressure from the studio based upon the test audiences. Um, but instead, we get Jim, the little flashes of him being treated in the hospital and him waking up happy happy in bed and helping out with the, the rescue me sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of them. Yeah, uh, and the other uh, alternate ending that was only ever storyboarded and not shot um, <laughs> was the much more ridiculous one <laughs> where they 
uh, essentially. I don't think it even involved the soldiers. It's it didn't. Descending. It didn't. Um, basically, yeah, it was. It- Frank still got infected, but they ha- they went and tried to give him a full blood transfusion, Fra- not just like a couple of out of uh, pints, but all of the blood from Jim. You're right. It would be Jim as the martyr to save Frank, right? Right. And ultimately, I think that they realized that this was even for this sort of a film was pretty far fetched. Yeah. If if one drop of a, a of blood off of a crow or raven's beak can infect a man, how could clean a blood, blood transfusion yeah. <laughs> help him out? Like that is a very implausible ending and I think ultimately that that a lot of the audiences Jim is a very hopeful character, so I I think that they reacted because that was the case. Like they lost Frank, they're not going to they don't want to lose Jim, right? In a way, they already did, though. I mean, well, like, yes. as you said, by the end, Jim is completely indistinguishable from infected. And he's even like even playing that up when uh, Selena is standing there with a machete ready to kill him. And then he makes a joke. He's like, oh, you waited more than a heartbeat. Right. He's giving your crap <laughs> and he's still covered in blood. Uh, and he makes a pretty he makes a pretty quick shift from being absolutely badass raging to giving her crap Lovable. and flirting with her. Yeah. And then, yeah, making out. Right. Uh, but yeah, so also their uh, their sign. <laughs> I I took uh, I took a bit of an exception with their their sign on the on the grass that says hell. Yeah. Oh, and then eventually they're just trying to write hello instead of help. Yeah, which seems sort of crazy to me. That also bothered me as well. So, <laughs> like, um, just turn your L upside down and add. Two more little bits. And you won't have to sew as many sheets. And who knows where you're getting all those sheets. It looked like, honestly, yards and yards and yards. And I know that they were probably doing some foraging, but that seemed a little crazy to me. So Didn't make... Yeah, I I would have just gone with help. Um, But, you know, whatever you got. Um, So let's let's get to the end of this. This has been an amazing film to talk about, but I think we might be... uh, We're we're way over now. (laughs) We're going, we're going long. So let's talk about our favorite scene and or favorite actor or character. I think, honestly, I think one, I had to really think about this. And my favorite scene is when they meet Frank and Hannah, because that, that is actually people still trying to, to cling a little bit to the niceties of society when all hell is breaking loose around them. Mm-hmm. And Frank and Hannah are active, re- acting relatively normal, and it's this sort of awkward but comedic, comedic scene when they're all drinking creme de menthe and, and trying to to act like they're at a at a cocktail party, getting to know each other. And so that was probably my favorite scene, and and also it introduces my favorite character, which is which is by far Frank. So that is that is that is my thought on that. Excellent, excellent choice, and I'm glad that ours differ because my favorite scene and favorite actor are also linked. Um, my favorite scene is, and I guess this will be giving away my favorite actor or my favorite character. My favorite scene is when Hannah uh, slams the cab into reverse and plunges uh, Major West back into the mansion to get yanked out of the back seat, and. She is also my favorite character. Uh, my favorite character. I think Hannah is, although she's like kind of uh, level. Like you know, there's not a whole lot of range to her. 
that's kind of what I like about her, even though she's on Valium for the second <laughs> half of the, of the movie. Uh, and that's why even before she's on Valium, she's always so chill. And she's like, if I had to be in a zombie apocalypse, I would want to be there with 12 year old Hannah. Hannah. Probably. She seems like she could handle anything. Right. And, um, as far as like origin stories go, I think that this is a great origin story for Hannah, the ultimate scourge of uh, the English infected landscape. Oh, that's a good one. So yeah, that's uh, that's where I landed on on favorites. That definitely surprised me. I was I didn't <laughs> think you were going to go there, but okay, but that's cool. I think we need to to wrap up. But one thing I will say is that despite all the sort of the, the things that we're pointing out here and logicals and, and different things like the wonky filmmaking in certain pieces and, and definitely some, some quality control oversights. I think that overall this movie still holds up and I think some of those quality control issues still add to that atmosphere that the world has fallen apart and you can forgive it a little bit. Um, but I also, when I found out the budget for this film, I was really amazed because compared to even films that were making at that time, it was pretty, it was a pretty low budget film. Um, and in fact, they were saying in the commentary that they had run out of money by the, by the military mansion, the end of the military mansion stay. And so for them to accomplish what they did with this film and, the box office ended up being something like 83 million, which is crazy. And I don't think that that Mm -hmm. includes all the other sales and and digital downloads and things like that. Um, Compared to some other very high budget films, this I think did an incredible job at what it was trying to portray. Um, And, you know, I, I, definitely give a lot of credit to, to Danny Boyle and Alex Garland and, and all the, the actors in this film for, for making it so great. Okay, and there you have it, everybody. Thanks for listening along with that out of the vault, what was old is now new once again episode of Reanimated with our retrospective podcast episode on 28 Days Later. So, uh, thanks for listening and we'll be back with some fresh Hot stuff off the presses here soon.